Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name's Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to have you with us. I want to say hello to those of you on our online campus. Thanks for joining us there uh, in, a, in our parent viewing rooms. That's a great option. If you have small children, you prefer to keep with you during the service. And anybody watching in our cafe, thanks for joining us there. Uh, we are in week two of a series called Asking for a Friend. And before we jump into that, I want to let you know that right after this service, right down front here, we're going to do something called Five and Five. Five and Five is this. We want to tell you five things about the church in five minutes. So if, you've, uh, if this is your first time today and you want to learn more about the church, you should come to Five and Five. If you've been coming for several weeks or several months and haven't yet found a way to get connected, you should come to Five and Five. If we've never met before and you just want to say hi, you should come to Five and Five. Uh, and if you've been coming for years and are looking for a place to be like, man, how do I take a next step and get connected? You should just hang out with us for five minutes. We're going to give you five things in five minutes. It's called Five and Five. So uh, that's right after service, right here. Promise you, max five minutes. So uh, I want to invite you to that. And then uh, the other thing I want to mention is this. That dashboard that we mention all the time, every week, Church Center app dashboard, uh, the best way to get started in that is just to update your contact info. If you haven't gone into the dashboard and updated your contact info, as soon as you do that, it triggers that dashboard to start sending you events, small groups, different things, ways for you to get connected, things like kids camp and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we're also doing a poll. This series, Asking for a Friend, is a way for us to go, hey, there's some stuff that you want to know about. And the whole idea is this. Hey, I, I kind of want to know this. Asking for a friend. And uh, the idea is like, there's some stuff you might want to know about church or God or faith or religion. And you just are kind of nervous to ask in church. And so we want to provide you a way to do that. And right on our dashboard, you can find a poll. And there's only one box to fill in. And it's, what would you like to ask? And you can type in a question. I'd encourage you to do it right during service. And type in a question and hit submit. And we get all of those. And my goal is to cover as many of those questions as we can over the next several weeks. And here's my commitment to you. Anything that we can't cover in, in a series here on a Sunday morning, uh, we'll create more content for. We'll film videos for it. We'll answer those questions. We'll get it out to you and uh, email it or social media. We'll post it on our social media channels because I really want to help answer the questions that people have about faith and God and, uh, and church and whatever else. So ask those questions. Go into your dashboard. Ask those questions. And uh, we'd love to help cover those. Now, uh, since this is our second week of this series, Asking for a Friend, uh, we're going to jump into, last week we started this series by reminding ourselves that we don't follow Jesus because of the Bible. We follow Jesus because of the eyewitness accounts, and that's how we have a Bible. However, we get those accounts in the thing that we call the Bible. So it's like, oh, well, how does all that work? Here's what we need to know, and this is kind of the jumping off point for today. We read the Bible so we can follow Jesus. The Bible is important. And if, if anything came across last week that was like diminishing the scriptures, that is not the intent at all. The Bible is incredibly important because it points us to Jesus. And so we read the Bible so that we can follow Jesus. And I think there are a lot of people who sort of call themselves, uh, you know, Christians or followers of Jesus. And if you were to ask them, uh, are, do you follow the Bible? They'd say, oh, yeah, absolutely. I follow the Bible. But we're not called by Jesus to be Bible followers. We're actually called to be Jesus followers. And we can not escape the fact that the way that we discover and learn and uh, know who Jesus is, is through the Bible. And so it's this thing that helps us and points us to Jesus. But if we read it for the wrong reasons or in the wrong ways, it can cause a lot of damage. And we, we do damage to our faith. We do damage to other people when we get the cart before the horse. And so here's what Jesus said. He was talking to the Pharisees one day, and he says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures 
that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus says, look, the whole idea of reading the scriptures is to point you to me. And now I'm here. The whole thing that you've been studying is pointing you towards the one that is to come. And now I've come and you refuse to come to me to receive the life that the very scriptures were pointing you towards. It's kind of like uh, going like this, man, inside of this is a heavenly elixir. It's a beautiful living water that gets filtered through some ground up beans Dirty bean water to some people, but to me, hmm, it's good. And the, the best way to get it is in this container, but if I was to try to get at it like this, <laughs> you'd go, first of all, that's an image I can never shake, and secondly, <laughs> like, you're never going to get coffee that way. You have, to, you have to drink it. And so here's my point. The... The way to get access to the liquid that's inside, the, the container is a critical part of that, right? I can't access that if it doesn't have something to contain it, if it doesn't have a container that actually brings me access to this heavenly elixir. But I don't actually get any kind of satisfaction from the cup itself, from the container itself. And in the same way, uh, the cup will never quench your thirst, but it's a critical component to give you what you want. The Bible acts in the same way to bring us the living water of Jesus. That the goal of the scriptures is not simply to read the scriptures. It is to point us to Jesus. We read the Bible so we can follow Jesus. And when the resurrection of Jesus was first witnessed and written about, the eyewitnesses, we talked about this last week, and if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to check it out. This is kind of a, a one-two part uh, punch here. Uh, they had no Bible. They simply had what they had seen and experienced. And so if they were uh, Jewish, they had the Jewish law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, and that was it. And what we know and what we call the New Testament, which is the writings of the eyewitnesses and the apostles, uh, it wasn't put together until 388. The, the AD 388 is the year that they took all of the writings and said, okay, we're going to put all of this together and call it canon. These are the sacred writings. And throughout the first few centuries, the writings of the eyewitnesses and the writings of the first century followers of Jesus were copied and distributed and eventually gathered together and put into one volume that we now have called the Bible. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we have a bunch of them for free. You can grab one at our Next Steps desk. But if you're anything like me and any of us who live in the 21st century, that means... When we got a Bible, whatever that was that you got one, and I'm in this category, when we were handed a Bible and kind of told, this is the foundation of our faith. This is it. And you're handed this volume. And this is the Bible. And this is the foundation of your faith. This is what you build your faith on. And every word is true. Every part of this is the, is the writing of God's word. Follow it and obey it because this is the foundation of our faith. And so consequently, when you and I read the Bible from our vantage point in human history in the 21st century, it can lead to some pretty devastating results. Because if we don't understand what we're writing, what we're reading, uh, if we don't understand and ask the right questions and understand the genre and understand the things that are going on, then what happens is this. There's a lot of people, and maybe you're in this category, many people have walked away from faith in God specifically because of something they read in the Bible. And so they read the Bible and... If you don't know the right questions to ask, if, you don't, if you're bringing assumptions and expectations to your reading of the Bible, then what happens is you can actually read something in the Bible that turns you away from faith, that turns you away from God. Now, hang in here with me for a few minutes because as we begin to talk about this, I just want to warn you up front that today's topic may cause some tension inside of you. 
You're going to feel a little angst here for the next 10 or 15 minutes, and I'm going to be very honest about some of the questions that people bring to the scriptures. And if you come from maybe a little bit more conservative Christian background or upbringing, then you might not be used to maybe this level of honest questioning around the Bible. And so uh, I'm going to try to land the plane before the end of the talk, but if you tune out in the next 10 to 15 minutes, uh, please don't do that, okay? If you're watching online, don't tune out in the next 10 to 15 minutes because you will be screwed up for the rest of your life. And I don't want that to happen to you, okay? So just hang in here with me. We'll land the plane. Our view and understanding of the scriptures shapes how we view God. Whatever, whatever our understanding is of the Bible is going to shape in some way, it, it has to, the way that we view God. And, and it influences our behavior. We can't escape that. And we can also look back through human history and know people have misinterpreted, misunderstood, and often even abused and hijacked different parts of the scriptures to further their own agenda, to do things in a way that they wanted, to uh, use them for their own purposes. You can find Bible verses to back up any belief, any certain, you can find them and, and you can read them in a certain context and get them to back up your particular belief, whatever that might be. And so we have to be very careful when it comes to how the Bible informs our faith in God. And Make sure that we're asking the right questions. Make sure that we understand that we, uh, what we're reading, what the genre is, what the author was communicating, and, and that we are not making the Bible something that the Bible never claims about itself. Because at the end of the day, the Bible or the scriptures is not the issue. Oftentimes, it is our assumptions and our expectations that we bring to the Bible that causes a lot of issues. It causes a lot of questions. It causes a lot of problems for us. Now, here's a few things you should know about the Bible. It is the best-selling book of all time, and it's not even close. It has sold more copies than any other book in human history, and there's barely a close second. In this country, this is how used we are to this. We, we go to hotels, and there's Bibles in the nightstand. Okay? There's a group of people called the Gideons that they made it their mission to put one everywhere so that people would have access to it. Uh, we name our kids after people from the Bible, right? Matthew and John and Sarah and Peter, Paul and Mary. And when's the last time you met a kid named Judas? It just doesn't happen, right? And it's just because it's kind of bled into our culture that, okay, Judas is the disciple that betrayed Jesus. We associate that with betrayal, and that's not a name we name our kids. Uh, we swear on Bibles in courtrooms and inaugurations. We use phrases from the Bible in everyday language. It's kind of just seeped into our modern culture. Uh, blind leading the blind. It's a, that's a reference to something in the scriptures. Uh, good Samaritan, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, take my hand, we'll make it, I swear. Whoa, oh, oh, living on a prayer. All of these, you know. <laughs> and the irony is this. We feel, we feel uh, that we've become so familiar with the Bible in our culture because of some of these things that uh, in reality, we're more familiar with our, actually our own assumptions and our own expectations than we might be with the actual scriptures. And so we have some assumptions that maybe we grew up with, with a certain denomination or a religious upbringing, a family background. Uh, we've got some expectations that we bring to the scriptures. And in reality, we're probably a lot more familiar with our own assumptions and our own expectations than we are with the scriptures themselves. And so some people read the scriptures in different ways. They bring their own assumptions and expectations. Some people see the Bible as a magic eight ball. And so, you know, the magic eight ball is like you shake it up and you get the answer, right? And you go, okay, uh, how is this going to work out? And, and some people kind of approach the Bible that way. And they just go, okay, well, kind of just pick and choose and guide my life. And whatever verse I land on, I land on. 
Uh, The problem with that is there's verses like this in Deuteronomy that says, if two Israelite men get into a fight and the wife of one tries to rescue her husband by grabbing the testicles of the other man, cut off her hand, show her no pity. What if you plop the Bible open and you go, Lord, lead my life? (laughs) What do you do with that? I don't know. But it's in there. Right? So it's like, all right, I don't know what to do with that. Some people would call the Bible a, uh, an owner's manual. Well, it's, it's God's owner's manual for life. Well, I have an owner's manual for my 2013 Kia Optima. Okay, can I just tell you, the Bible doesn't read like that at all. Like, that thing is super clear. And if anything goes wrong with my Kia, I can find it, and I go right to that page, and I go, oh, that's what's going on. I wish the Bible read like an owner's manual. But it doesn't. It's more nuanced than that. It's got a lot of other things going on. And in fact, it reads a little bit more like a sci-fi novel than, uh, than an owner's manual. There's a lot of people who would say this. I think that it's a love letter from God. A love letter from God. Now, I just want to be really clear. There are a lot of parts in the scriptures that point to and that are expressions of God's incredible and immeasurable love for humanity. But if you think that all of the writings in the scriptures are a love letter from God, you are setting yourself up for disillusionment because you're going to come across some stuff that goes, that doesn't feel like a love letter from God. A lot of people think that the scriptures are a book of promises. Well, God, this is a book of promises. And so what ends up happening is this. You approach faith. If if the scriptures, if the Bible is a book of promises, that will lead you to approach your faith as a contract. And you will hold God hostage because you're keeping your end of the deal, so he better keep his. And God, these are the promises that you made. And I'm keeping my end of the deal. And then somewhere along the way, here's what's going to happen because this is just real life in a broken world. You're going to keep your end of the deal. And it's going to seem like God doesn't keep his end of the deal. And now you have to abandon faith in God because he didn't keep his end of the deal. In fact, uh, Psalm 103 says this, he forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. And so what do you do when you come across something in your life where God doesn't heal all of your diseases? Now I have to walk away from God because, God, I kept my end of the bargain and you didn't come through. If you read the Bible as a book of promises, you have to be ready to deal with verses like that. And so what do you do with all of these things? All of these assumptions and expectations are not helping our faith grow. They're not pointing us to Jesus. And I can tell you, these assumptions and these expectations are definitely not helping the faith of the next generation, of the middle schoolers and high schoolers and young adults that are coming behind. Their faith is being hampered if we bring it and teach that, oh, it's a book of promises or, uh, you know, you just got to, it's a love letter from God or it's the owner's manual for your life. It's so much bigger and more nuanced than that. And here are a few things to help us understand what the Bible actually is that I think are really important. First of all, the Bible is not a book. It's a library. Did you know that the Bible was composed by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years across multiple continents? It wasn't like one person sat down one day and went, I think I'm going to write the Bible. I mean, this thing is a a, a massive volume of different genres and different writings across multiple continents, across multiple languages, uh, multiple cultures, multiple different authors over a period of multiple centuries. And it all gets put together to become what we have. And so this is the difficulty for us. We're handed it all in one volume. 
We think it's a book, but it's a library. You would never go into a library and go, I'm not, I don't know what I think about that book, so I have to throw the whole library out. But that's what we're tempted to do with the Bible. Well, I got questions about this, so the whole thing, I gotta, I gotta pitch the whole thing because it's one big volume. But we have to understand in the scriptures, there are different genres. In fact, the first five books are the books of law or what the Hebrews would call the, the Pentateuch or the Torah, the law of Moses. And then you have uh, several books, about 12 books of historical narrative. And then you have uh, uh, books that are poetry. And they're, they're writing almost like journal entries and poetic telling of God's goodness and the emotions that humanity faces. And then you have uh, multiple books of uh, uh, prophetic writing, prophets that are bringing messages from God for a specific nation in a specific time. And then you get to what we call the New Testament, this, this sort of the last third of this volume, this library. And you end up with eyewitness accounts and you end up with uh, the, the apostles writing letters to churches and writing letters to individuals and then writing letters to groups of people living within the first century and describing what it means to follow the way of Jesus. And you have all of these things and you can't, you can't assume that it's all the same because there's so many different authors and different eras in which this library was composed. Another thing is this, you have to know that uh, the scriptures have both a divine and a human component both a divine component and a human component. And so uh, we, we are taught in the scriptures that they are God-breathed or inspired by God. But if we're being honest, we don't know what that looks like. We don't know what that partnership is. Uh, how, what extent of it is God-breathed? What does that mean that it's inspired? And this is where some of you right now are just going, don't mess with my Bible. <laughs> I can sense the angst. It's okay. Because... I believe that the scriptures are divinely inspired by God, but what does that mean? Does that mean that every writer fell into a trance and God took over their arm and just like shaped the letters? Or does it mean that they actually wrote and they were fully conscious and fully aware, and, but God inspired the words that they were to write? Or did they just write and then God changed the words? And, you know, how does it all work? The truth is we don't know and we can't possibly know. What we do know is this, that real people in real places, lived in a real place in a real time, and they wrote real things. And of course, it's going to reflect their humanity. And if you were to compose a narrative today and try to express what you knew about God, it would be filled with your own experiences. It would be filled with your own understanding of God based on your world. It would, be, it would reflect your culture, your language, your verbiage, even your personality as a human being. And it would still be inspired by God and influenced by God, but it would still reflect humanity. Think about it like this. If we were to write today about the current political climate in our world, and it's particularly in the United States of America, the two-party system that we have, God help us all. Uh, we, would, we would somewhere along the way write about blue donkeys and red elephants. And every one of us knows exactly what that means. Now imagine that somebody is reading what you wrote about blue donkeys and red elephants 2,000 years from now on a different continent in a different language. They would be reading it and going, what in the world was the matter with these people? This is crazy. Red elephants? Are you serious? What were they tripping on acid back then? What's going on? But we know perfectly well based on our cultural context. And sometimes we read things in a cultural context 2,000 years later in a different language on a different continent and we go, okay, I don't know how we can get behind that. And if we, don't, if we don't ask the right questions and we bring our assumptions and our expectations to it, then it becomes very messy. But it is divinely inspired, but 
God uses imperfect human people. So it's got a divine component and a human component. Here's the other thing. Uh, Each author had a specific agenda in mind. Every single author wrote with a specific agenda. And many of the stories contained in the scriptures were passed down as oral traditions. They started as an oral tradition and then were passed down one after the other. And so what you discover is this, that you have uh, somewhere along the way, they had to decide, all right, what gets in? What what are we going to tell? This can't be multiple, multiple massive volumes. So what actually makes it in? So somewhere along the way, they had to carefully determine what are the stories that we're going to tell to move the arc of what God is doing in the world forward. And they chose. And that means human beings inspired by God, divinely inspired, but making a decision because they had an agenda in mind to tell the story of what God was doing. In fact, when you read many of the scriptures, many of the authors actually tell you their agenda right on the front end. In fact, Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus, and he says, Theophilus, there's a bunch of eyewitnesses and a lot of people around this whole story of Jesus. A lot of people have set out to write their accounts. It wasn't just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and what we have today. There was a lot of them that didn't survive antiquity. A lot of eyewitnesses were writing about their accounts. And and Luke writes to this guy, Theophilus, and says, Many people, many people have set about to write about their story, to write their eyewitness accounts. And here's what he says to Theophilus. He says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Luke says, I have a very specific agenda. I'm writing to my friend Theophilus. There's all these stories going around. And Theophilus, I'm writing to you, and here's why. Because I want you to be certain. So I've carefully investigated everything and I've put together a chronological account so that you can know and be sure of the things that you're hearing. You read about uh, Esther in the Old Testament and Esther is a historical narrative and it starts off like this. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia and starred in the movie 300. That's historical. And, And... Like, this is just a historical narrative. These are the dates. Here's who was reigning. It's a historical narrative. John, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, he writes in his account and says, I'm, I'm speci- I have a specific agenda. I- I'm writing for a very specific reason. And here's what John says. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. John says this, if I were to write down everything, everything that Jesus did and everything that we experienced, the world would not be able to contain the books that would be written about him. And so I've carefully chosen the ones that I think are really going to point you to Jesus. And the reason I've written these specific things is so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. John just comes out and says it. This is my agenda. This is why I wrote this. Every single author wrote for a reason. Every one of them has some sort of agenda. And their agenda is shaped by their own economic and political and social and religious cultures that they're a part of in their time in human history. And so here's what happens. When I was a kid, uh, me and my brother, my brother's three years younger, and sometimes when we got done playing board games and playing card games, and we're just like, oh, we're bored, now what? As kids sometimes do, we would take all the cards and we'd start building a house of cards. And you know how this goes, right? It's like you're building, you're trying to see how big you can get it, and this becomes a game in itself. And then you're like, don't sneeze. And somebody bumps the table, and you're like, come on, man. And as soon as you bump the table, one card falls, the whole thing comes collapsing down, doesn't it? And for many people, this is how they approach the Bible. This is how they approach the scriptures. 
It's, okay, if I find one inaccuracy, if I find one discrepancy, if I find one thing that I don't understand, it's like the whole thing is a house of cards. And if that thing comes out, then the whole thing comes crashing down and I have to throw it all out. It's all or nothing. And that means I either believe everything about the Bible and I, and I, and I believe all of it is literal and true and I build my whole life on all of it, or none of it. There's no nuance. There's no gray area. There's no in-between. There's no questioning and everything is equally important and everything hangs on everything else. And I was taught, and maybe some of you were taught this as well, that if there's one error in the Bible, then the whole thing could be an error. Like if there's one crack in the dam, then the whole thing is going to burst apart. If there's one inaccuracy, historical inaccuracy or scientific inaccuracy, then the whole thing could be inaccurate. And if there's one contradiction, the whole thing's a book of lies. It's this house of cards theology because your faith is only one error or one inaccuracy or one discovery away from all of it falling to the ground. Now, here's the danger with that kind of a mentality and that kind of an approach to reading the Bible. First of all, it damages our faith. Because there are some inconsistencies because it is divinely inspired, but through imperfect human authors. So there's some, er there's some things that humans write, even though they're divinely inspired, it doesn't make them any less inspired because sometimes human beings are imperfect. Ancient writers often made points about God by telling non-literal stories. And, and there's no reason why God would be prohibited from using a non-literal story to make a point about his character. Jesus did this all the time. Jesus said things like, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And yet we don't read anything about one-handed people running around. Nobody took him literally. They, they recognized, oh, that's, a, that's hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point. If, you're, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. We don't read anything about, you know, eye patches all over the New Testament. It's easier for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You know, it's like, well, that's impossible. It's like, right, that's the point. Jesus tells stories about a prodigal son and about a good Samaritan. And these aren't actual stories that happened. They're stories that Jesus is making up to make a point. Another problem is, if we're honest, there's some glaring inconsistencies in the Bible. It doesn't make it any less inspired to recognize that in God moving through imperfect human beings, there's some inconsistencies. Some of it's numerical stuff. Uh, there's a story in, uh, in, in the historical narrative in the Old Testament where they do a count of the, of the soldiers and one of them arrives at 500,000 and one of them arrives at 470,000. And you go, well, there it is. Contradiction in the Bible. That's a miscount of 30,000 people. But again, you're talking about ancient people looking out in a field and, and, and counting. So these are estimates at best, and one, one person sees 470,000, and another writer sees 500,000. And, and we don't use that and go, well, see, there it is. It's a house of cards. See, because the one, it's inaccurate. Now I've got to throw the whole thing out. And there are some things that just don't match up. In fact, the Bible doesn't reflect the science of today. Think about that. In Genesis, the sun is created on the fourth day, but light is created on the first day. And how do you even measure the days until the sun comes? How do you have a day one, two, and three if... The sun isn't even created until day four. Well, because it's not meant to reflect science. God couldn't just show up in the ancient world and start spouting off modern science the way that we've come to understand how things work. Hey, everyone worship me because of the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> Non-equilibrium theory and chaos theory and galactic dispersal and the superposition of quantum particles. Yes, I had to look all that up. 
And I still can't tell you what any of it means. The house of cards approach to faith and the Bible doesn't allow for process. It doesn't allow for growth. It doesn't allow for questioning. It's this all or nothing approach to faith in God. And if you take that approach, you're left with only two options. One, anytime, anytime that, uh, you know, something you see, any kind of inaccuracy or it doesn't reflect modern science or, you know, you have a question about anything, then your whole house of cards comes crashing down and you have to abandon faith altogether. Or two, anytime you have a question and you bump into something in your real world life and you go, I don't know how to reconcile that with what I'm reading, then you either have to abandon faith in God or you have to bury your head in the sand and not ask any questions. And be and turn off your brain, be an uninformed follower of Jesus and just, you know, the Bible says it, that settles it, I believe it. And that's not healthy. And here's why. Here's ultimately what that does. That actually allows us to use the Bible to justify hurting others. Somewhere along the way, we will use the Bible to prop ourselves up and go, well, I'm good. I'm really good at reading the Bible. I've read a lot of the Bible. Uh, so uh, now I have this feeling of superiority and pride. And now I can actually treat people who don't read the Bible as much as I read the Bible poorly. And that's such an interesting dichotomy. That isn't what Jesus asks us to do. We can't escape that. Our view and understanding of Scripture is going to shape our view of God. It's going to influence our behavior. We can't escape that. And we can also look back through human history and, again, know that people have misinterpreted and misunderstood and abused and hijacked Bible verses for their own purposes. We said this already. You can do that. And followers of Jesus, the Bible has been used by, quote-unquote, Christians for centuries to justify war, violence, conquest, slavery, and a host of other things that we know are in direct contradiction to Jesus. And you can go, well, but if you, if you look at this Bible verse and you pull it out of context and you quote it here and you put it with this. And so just a, a saying, oh, the Bible says it, that settles it, doesn't settle it because there's too much nuance. And we read the Bible specifically to follow Jesus. I think a different approach to faith and the Bible that needs to be explored and that needs to be examined and is an approach that I believe is not only much more viable and much more sustainable, but much more biblical. I think a major aspect of the kind of faith that I believe is biblical is in alive is working not to treat all beliefs as equal, not to treat all parts of the Bible as equal. I think that all parts of the scriptures are divinely inspired, but not all parts of the scriptures are, divi- are, are, are equally inspired, rather. But not all parts of the scriptures are equally applicable and relevant to you and me today. They point to something, and, and it points to Jesus. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 5 that, that his words carry more weight than John's. He also criticizes the Pharisees for their lack of proportion when it comes to their reading of the Hebrew Scriptures. Primarily, that they treat the small details, the small details of the regulations of the law with great importance, while ignoring the greater uh, idea and spirit behind it, like justice and mercy and compassion. Jesus himself says those, those carry more weight. All of it is divinely inspired, and all of it is equally divinely inspired, but not all of it is equally relevant and applicable to us. So... Instead of a house of cards model that just says, okay, if, if I can't put my trust in all of it or if I have questions about any of it, then I got to throw all of it out. I would suggest a model that views it more as concentric circles and that we start in the very center of the bullseye with Jesus. 
that we start with Jesus, that we follow Jesus, that we learn about Jesus. Now, you, you use the Bible to do that, but the goal is not to read the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible. The goal is not to read the Bible for the sake of saying, hey, I, you know, kind of growing up for me, it was kind of like if I could read the Bible, it was like 30 minutes a day, I could check that box off and I'm, I'm, a, good, I'm a good Christian. But simply gaining knowledge about the Bible doesn't make you more like Jesus. If you're not seeking to follow Jesus. And for me, everything depends on Jesus. My faith is directed towards him. And here's why. Faith, faith, when we talk about faith, it is not an intellectual ascent. Faith is not intellectual. It's not just information and, and believing the right doctrines. Because when you do that, uh, that's a, that becomes an intellectual faith. But the way that the, that the New Testament writers, the way that, that the eyewitnesses and the apostles talked about faith, it wasn't an intellectual pursuit. It was a relational pursuit. It was a pledge of trust in a person. It wasn't a, a belief in a doctrine. It was a pledge of trust in a human being. And I get my source of life and my security and my love and my hope from Jesus. Everything depends on him because Jesus is the living, breathing word of God. This is the way that John would write it. He says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word is a reference to Jesus. He says he already existed even in the very beginning. In, in the creation narrative, he was the word. And when God created the world and God spoke, he spoke. That was the word and, and that was Jesus. And Jesus was partnering with God in creation. And the word was with God and the word was God. And so the word became human and made his home among us. And so Jesus, John would say, Jesus is the living, breathing word of God. And if Jesus is the word of God and he comes into this world and he reveals God, and this is the God is, that's the kind of God who would actually humble himself in human form and then fight injustice and a corrupt religious system, so much so ultimately that he would offer himself as a sacrifice in that system to put an end to that system. And then he's going to forgive my sins and defeat sin and death and adopt me into his family and promise to one day renew and restore all things. And for me, the goal of how I live my life is simply to learn more about that and imitate that. That's 99.9% .9 of it right there. And all the rest that comes with all of the scriptures, I can bring all of my questions about all of that. I don't have to, if, if a card comes out, the whole thing collapses. I don't have to live that way. I can say, no, I'm following Jesus. And, and I have these questions about what I read in this part and what I read over here and what I read over here from this author and that author. And I'm not sure what genre it is, and, but I can bring all of those to Jesus because I, I'm a Jesus follower. And, and I want to read the Bible because the Bible points me to Jesus. But at the end of the day, my trust isn't in a set of doctrines. It's in the person of Jesus. He is the living, breathing word of God. And now I don't have to get upset and fight and debate over all the details and points of view because Jesus is the center and he is who I cling to. And I don't have to worry that someone's going to come along and topple my house of cards. And when Jesus went around inviting people to follow him, how many preliminary theological questions did he ask them? Hey, Matthew, you're a tax collector. Hey, come follow me. But real quick, where do you stand on the theory of atonement? Can you define justification, sanctification for me and the difference? He didn't like run through a bunch of like, you know, theological terms and Bible college terms and seminary terms. He just said, hey, follow me. Hey, follow me. Hey, Matthew, come here. Follow me. Hey, Simon, follow me. And you don't try to work out correct theology in order to follow Jesus. You simply follow Jesus. And your view of everything else begins to change and shift in that pursuit. 
as you follow him. And the Bible's full of theology. And none of it is given as a prerequisite or a precondition to a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the center. He's the one we follow, not a belief. Okay, so at the center of everything is Jesus. But to understand Jesus, you have to read the Bible. You can't get to Jesus without the Bible. And so you start with Jesus, and then you move to Scripture. And then you read Scripture. Scripture is incredibly important because it's the story of Jesus. And since I'm committed to following Jesus, I read the Scriptures because it's how I discover who he is and, and more about the world he created and how to follow him and how he interacts with humanity. It doesn't settle the issue of how I interpret it or how much is equally applicable to my life today that I have to sift through all that or how much it lines up with science. It just means that it informs my view of Jesus and how to live my life as his follower. And so Paul, writing to Timothy in the first century, says this, all scripture is inspired by God. It's useful. There's a point to this. It's useful to teach us what is true to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The point of it is that I read it to become more like Jesus. And if I'm reading it to prop myself up to so that I can say how much I've read the Bible, then eventually I'm just going to use it to hurt somebody else and use my superiority to make them feel inferior. The whole point of it is that God will use it to show me, to highlight in me areas of my life where I can become more like Jesus. And when Paul writes to Timothy that all of Scripture is inspired by God, it's God-breathed or God-inspired, the point that he's making is that God uses these writings to influence our lives. And he's not trying to make a, a, a statement about how they were prepared. Paul is not trying to make a theological statement about the composition of the scriptures as much as he's trying to help them understand that God speaks to us through them and instructs us through them. And so my reasons for believing the scriptures are not because it's a perfect book. My reason for reading the scriptures is because I'm committed to Jesus. And the scriptures are a part of his identity and they're a part of his story. And when I accept Jesus, I accept the story that comes with him. And sometimes people say, well, I believe in the Bible, therefore I believe in Jesus. But that's putting the cart before the horse. That makes the Bible the center ring and then Jesus the secondary ring. But the order of these is what matters. Christianity then, if the Bible's in the center, it becomes a religion that is centered on a book instead of a relationship that is centered on a person. And that is what Jesus calls us to. And when you make Jesus the center, you seek to learn his story. And the way that you do that is you then read the scriptures But I don't read the scriptures and then go, now I got to get Jesus to back up something that I read somewhere else so I can live my life the way I want to. I go, no, I start with Jesus and then I let whatever I learn about Jesus, that's the lens through which I read the rest of the scriptures and it informs my view of the scriptures. And when I have things that I don't know what to do with, I bring them back to Jesus. Now, here's a a question. Well, why can't we just... Why is the Bible set then? Why don't we just keep adding to it? Like there should be more and more. And shouldn't there be more people writing more things about Jesus and just, just growing, expanding volume? And the reality is uh, when they got together in 388, in AD 388, and combined the Hebrew scriptures with the, the New Testament writers, it all came together. And they said, this is it because this, these are the eyewitnesses and these are the apostles and they wrote. And now that they're no longer alive there, there's no longer people who have seen Jesus with their own eyes. So we're going to close that. These are the sacred writings. These are who God revealed himself to. And that's why we don't keep adding to it. Now, real quick, and then we'll close. There's two more things. 
But you got to start with Jesus. That's the center. And then you expand and you read the scriptures because that's how you inform Jesus. And then you have theological opinions or, or theological doctrines. These are things that have been around for thousands of years, the way that people interpret the scriptures and a generally accepted view of the interpretation of scripture. And these are things that people sometimes interpret differently, but they're not core to what it means to follow Jesus. That's why we've got oftentimes different denominations that do things differently. Some people, uh, you know, they sprinkle and do baptism that way, uh, and then we dunk you in a trough. <laughs> and by the way, it's coming up on May 7th, and you should sign up for that because we want to celebrate that with you. It's just a different expression. It doesn't mean one's right or wrong. Or both have their reasons for doing things the way they do things. Uh, how do we understand free will? How do we understand the end times? If these are what you're basing your faith on, then of course you're going to get ticked off when somebody challenges you in your way of seeing it because they're coming after one of your idols and your house of cards can't stand up under that pressure. But when you cling tightly to Jesus, there is room to grow and change and learn and ask questions in these other areas without compromising your faith because your faith is rooted in Jesus. And then fourthly, you finally get to just personal preferences. Now, these are things like worship style. Well, I like hymns. Well, I like modern music, right? These are just preferences. But, but we don't take our preferences and make them the center ring and then try to get Jesus to fit our preferences. We start with Jesus. We let what we know about Jesus inform our view of the scriptures. And from there, we start to form theological doctrines or opinions. And then from there, we have our personal preferences. And they're not rooted in Jesus or scripture. They're just simply rooted in the tradition we grew up in, the church we grew up in, the family background that we had. But when you start with Jesus, you let what you know about Jesus inform your view of the rest of it. Now, I think it's so important that we just stick to what Jesus said. This is the most important thing. These were his words. He said this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we read the scriptures to become more like Jesus, it helps us do that. It helps us grow in our love for God, grow in our love for others. And when we read the Bible primarily to uh, just gain knowledge for me so I can become more proud and superior and Jesus is secondary, it really causes us to get off track. And so you start with Jesus. What he says is the most important. And don't let your faith crumble because you're building it like a house of cards. So here's what we're going for. Unity. Unity around those things that are most important. And liberty around those things that are not. And love no matter what. And if you've never said yes to following Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. The story, of, the story of, of the world is Jesus came into the world. He put an end to religion, an end to that system that you have to somehow measure up. And he invites you to follow him. If you've never said yes to that, I want to invite you to do that. And you can do that by just agreeing with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I'm so grateful you never walk away from me. And I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son, make me your daughter and help me to follow you as best as I know how. And even as I gain more information from the scriptures, let them point me to you so that I can follow you and put my trust in you. And God, for every one of us who are following you, our goal is to love, grow in our love for you and grow in our love for others. So may our reading of the scriptures, which we love, which we cherish, may it lead us to you, to become more like you and to love like you. In Jesus' name, amen.